Hello, and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news, and give you unique insights into the industry. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 107th episode in a series called Pax Romana. Last episode was an interview with Chris Avalon, co-founder, project director, and lead creative designer for Obsidian Entertainment. Today we will go over the PAX 2014 roundup of people I've gotten to talk to, and it's been a while. So let's recap what's been going on, essentially. Um, I've had two jobs in the gaming industry in the last mm, eight months or so, and it has taken a while for me to get back to the gray area. It's been, I guess, two or three months since I've had an episode. And the reason is because I have a new job actually in the gaming industry, which I'm excited to tell you about. I can't do so yet. Um, not until May or so. Then I can tell you details of what's going on. But being on the inside of the gaming industry is, is an entirely new experience that I am anxious to share. So look forward to that in May. In the meantime, you will have sporadic episodes of the gray area to continue. So today I have something special for you. We're going to talk to some people that I met at PAX. First off, we're going to start with the Bioware panel headed by Jessica Marizan. And they are talking a bit about Dragon Age 3, giving you some spoilers on their romance options, which is probably the only panel you're going to hear in this show. Secondly, we have Dave Gilbert from, as I said, the Blackwell series. Third, we're going to have Phoenix Fire, which is an interesting studio that just began a startup, but the two members of the studio, husband and wife team, are extremely experienced in MMOs. You may recognize um, the interviewee as the lead environmental artist from StarCraft Ghost. So combined together, they have a lot of experience and the new game called Source that they're talking about is pretty innovative, so check that out. Next, we're going to speak with Behemoth, who you may recognize from their game Castle Crashers. We're going to speak about their new one called Battle Block Theater, which will be coming to Steam fairly soon. Uh, definitely fun to play and unusual premise, so check that out. And we will finish with Wildstar talking about their battlegrounds. Now the, I guess you'd say, clarity and quality of the recordings differs throughout the entire uh, show. Um, obviously this is a con of 10,000 plus people. Tried to bring them into interview rooms, which were fairly quiet, but there is some interference, so please excuse any background noise you hear. Tried to clean it up as much as possible. I think the worst of the bunch is the Wildstar uh, exclusive, which was given um, very nicely in a uh, presentation form by Wildstar, I believe their community manager. And uh, again, exclusive information, which I wish I had gotten out on Wednesday, but uh, that's probably the worst of the quality you're going to hear just because of loud people in the background walking by as they were giving this. So anyway, I would love to talk to you more about some of the personal stuff going on, but it's going to have to wait till May. So very excited for that, and I hope you enjoy this extra long episode of The Gray Area. Talk to them for hours and hours and hours. 
meet someone who's not, a, who hasn't played a Bioware game, and you have no idea where to start. So I'm really excited because there's so many, uh, so many questions for me with Dragon Age Inquisition uh, about where are we going, what are we going to see, and, uh, and who are we going with. That's right. Give the unique experience based on those factors, basically. Mm -hmm. You've made those decisions, so this party's here, so banter's going to change, and the abilities will be different, and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and, uh, and not too much concerns about spoiling it for uh, someone else. Yep, yeah. not too much anyway. Spoilering, spoilering, spoilering. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it's not a word. It's not a word, but it's my word. It's my word. Marazang, Marazang. <laughs> Marzipan. 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 Delicious. No. So, uh, speaking of things that we haven't spoiled, because you can't say spoilering in the past tense. Um, <laughs> spoilering. Yeah. We've talked a little bit. We've talked about locations. We've seen some. Um, we haven't spoiled too much about some of these beautiful places. You know, we've seen them, but we, we don't know where they are in some cases. I mean, obviously that crazy ballroom that I hope people go take a picture of when our our snack yourself booth is open from eleven to three daily. Um, uh, we 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 have a guess as to where that probably is, but you know, we we haven't gone into too much detail as to where some of these levels are going to be. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, where we're going and who we're going with. Uh, because we're, we're getting into that point where we're starting to talk a little bit about, about characters. And so I'm, I'm interested in, in, because there's so many, again, they're tied to, to combat, they're tied to the locations. You always have uh, the conversations that um, the followers in, in previous games, they always have something to say about where you are. Yeah, um, so we've obviously we've got a, a fairly large party uh, this time around, uh, nine followers who can take the game. Um, and in, in the course of that, uh, there's, a, there's a fairly even spread across the classes, so you, uh, you, can, you can go running out with three warriors if you want to be one yourself. So if you want to have a Frankenstein party game. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really dirty. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the the goal for us is uh, you know we always we always try to develop unique characters that um, that uh, balance around the themes of the game. Uh, so so an example that probably won't spoil anything because you're here at nine in the morning on the first day of packs uh, is all of all of the DA two followers, for instance, were outcasts, right? Thematically. And you don't really register that at first, but when you start to think about them, it's like Omero oh, kicked out of her tribe. Fenris, you know, doesn't even remember who he was, right? You know, uh, found a home in the Fog Warriors. Oops, killed them all. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody who finds a home loses it. It's kind of a, a running theme throughout them all, and they're kind of they're kind of bound together by the fact that they're outsider. And that was that was an element of it. So one of our goals uh, with Inquisition is uh, we're, we're trying to play the fantasy of you being in charge, being a leader. Right? And that's not a juvenile power fantasy where you're like, do this, man! It's, uh, it's about building earnest respect and then us challenging you and saying, so, so people are saying stuff about you, how do you respond? Because to me, games are kind of at their most intriguing when they're asking you how you feel as a player. They're letting you dive into roleplay and it doesn't, it doesn't make the game better or worse, so it doesn't, doesn't affect your stats, it just lets you kind of respond and then the game remembers. So 
in the course of being a leader, one thing we decided to do was give you a cast of characters that were, in and of themselves, leaders, or at least very prominent, very important. So Cassandra, one of the most important speakers in the world, you know, uh, uh, speaking in terms of the Empress of Orlais, um, speaking in terms of the Divine. Uh, you have, you know, Vivian, who was the first enchanter of the circles before they all fell apart. Uh, in Orlais, the big one, right? That's if you're gonna if you're gonna be in charge of one, that's the one because it's got better better lighting. <laughs> Fancier dresses, you name it. Um, so, so that's kind of that's kind of the, the, the thing we've been building towards with the characters. Um, and I'll shut up in a second. But here's here's the other big thing is that we haven't really talked about the story thus far too much in terms of like the, the arc that you go on. Um, partly because we do want to avoid spoiling in any of them, um, but also because. Uh, in, in, a, in a way, it's one of those things I, I truly do want you guys to discover it and kind of have it unfold in front of you and be more surprising. We'll go into a little more detail soon uh, about what it means to be Inquisitor and so on. But in the course of the of game itself, there is uh, kind of an ebb and flow where you're going out and kind of expanding the Inquisition's power, kind of investigating stuff that's going on. Uh, groups of bad guys start to form and you end up you know, kind of dismantling the stuff they're doing. Um, and in doing that, you basically unlock the next stage in the story. So it's kind of go adventure, now go, now go get deep into that character building stuff. Uh, and I'm pretty excited to, to start rolling that out for you. We just, you know, have a point yet. Uh, one of the themes of this weekend that uh, we'll be exploring is the idea that storytelling is, is not just a writer's discipline. Um, I, I think that the uh, idea of the Inquisitor, and even the idea of the, the um, Inquisition and kind of that, that whole faction of being um, an uh, Inquisitor scout, that there, there's a lot of characterization to that. So I'm interested in a uh, review of, of um, the characterization of the, the followers as well as the Inquisitor, how that has affected your work and, and what you guys have been putting into, um, into the, the things that you're doing. I think the big thing for me when I'm doing these, these levels is trying to find opportunities for the position to you and your character be the vanguard, pushing through and staking claims in areas. So, for example, for the, the, the plains area where everything's just, just destroyed and all these, these castles have been abandoned and there's you know, refugees are huddling out and there's your chance to go in there and really take charge when no one else can. Basically, it's you coming in there when no one else can do anything about it. Yeah, for sure, the visual point of view is if, if the Inquisition can take some work, it's going to be somewhere cool. Uh, so we, we try and build spaces that when you see it, you like, I want to walk that thing. And then we can give the opportunity to do something. Yeah. 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 I want that. <laughs> I want to go there. Yeah. 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 And then part of the joy is finding your way there, and the rest of the joy is, is clearing it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, for sure, with the followers, actually working with the writers on that, uh, we want to exploit these places in the best possible ways. Like, we want to get the right loot in the right places. If you go to a Dalish area, then we want to get something in there. That's obviously themed for that, for that area. And uh, with the writers and the followers, is we want their personalities to come up when you go to these places. What history have they got to tell? Like, have they been here before? Because they've got their own personality, right? So have they been here before? What story can they tell you about them? What opinions have they got in this place? Do they want to be there? And that's been great, especially as we progress, as we come towards the end, we're getting a lot of video recording now. The game and, and hearing the voices just 
through. So yeah, you play this level that you've worked on, and the video was going through somewhere on the server, and you're simply playing, and suddenly there's a voice, you know, previously it was a robot voice, and now it's a real voice, and you're like, wow, this is so different. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. So it's very exciting, the banter going on, you've yeah. like, you've been running through this thing for like hours, making it, and then all of a sudden there's some character banter, and then it's just like, well, this is just sort of come to life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're trying to attack the, the banter from, from different angles. So one is, there's banter specific for every place you go to, so they have something to say. Um, and that's, that's part of discovering itself. Like taking, what character am I going to take with today? Because who's going to have an opinion about the space that I'm going to? And that's, that's what we're really doing. Yeah, they're, they're defined enough that um, you're like, okay, this is where the mages would shine. So if you've got a major party, which you know, typically you do, because you know, Marvel, um, <laughs> they, uh, then, then we, we, we actually clustered a lot more like, oh, this is Dwarven stuff, well, the Varric's here. Otherwise, there's stuff you can miss entirely, because it only happens at one time, and yeah, well, you didn't have a Dwarf to chime in. So that's what took really long. Well. Yes, creatures. So, with, uh, with each party member, we actually also offer a variety of abilities, and that's kind of, kind of where we, we try to deliver a uh, unique experience for when you build your party. So, support that sort of um, exploration. Obviously, you're going to have multiple party members that have uh, a fairly specific build. Some of them go and make careful choices as to who you bring and, and what your combat tactics are going to be for that. So, I think that, um, that's, that's pretty close. But, but Jason, are my followers restricted in what weapons they can wield? You know, I'm really glad to ask that. Right? <laughs> Short answer is, is per class, um, I don't know. Um, but again, you want, you're going to want to have each party member fulfill a specific tactical role. Your best experience is, is really to, to, to put, put a little into how you build your party. I mean, that doesn't mean you have to, have to go super deep. Um, but if you want to, you get a, you get a little bit of a different experience. Yeah, I don't think we've mentioned this, but, but respects for all. So if you make a mistake, go just go first. You get a respect. You get a respect. You get a sometimes you want to earn gold out of a shield, right? And sometimes you're like, no, no, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does suit it. He's great. Especially if you find some weapons out there. Like, yeah, you know, when I was playing, you know, uh, we test each other's levels out on a regular basis to get feedback. Some play someone else's else level of a day. And I came through and I'm, I'm going on the sword and shield, and I find this, this huge two handed axe, and I'm like, I have to use that right now. So I'm just going to start swinging it away, and that's awesome. I, I think to be at that point where I'm like, that's cool, but I've got to go back and find my two handed guy yeah. and play that way. Characters. We've talked about exploration. We've talked about how beautiful everything is. Like, I'd like to talk a little bit more about about beauty, about where we're going, about who we're going with, about 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 characters, about about a lot of things. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> what about romance? <laughs> Pretty strong thoughts on romance. <laughs> so yeah, um, I I I led to believe by focus groups 
shush, Tom. I'm talking now. Um, some, sometimes we get feedback that people enjoy having romantic elements in the game. I, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts? And uh, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of went to the PR guys. I'm like, all right, I want to, I want to bust something out because, you know, we're doing a DA panel first thing. So you guys deserve a little, little candy, you know. <laughs> So we haven't announced this anywhere else, so you guys get to get your Twitters out and so on. But, um, so, uh, there will be a romance in Dragon Age Inquisition. Phone <laughs> 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 uh, No, so, uh, okay, so I will, I will, I'm, I'm going to give you some names. I'll give you two names in a minute. But first, let's talk about why it's there. Because actually, this one is an interesting subject. And some people like some people actually kind of get all oogie about it. They don't want to talk about it. But um, we've got we've got general philosophy of Bioware. Um, uh, in, in general, we're inclusive. We do every damn thing we can to kind of support you know all players. Come play our game, enjoy it. Um, the, part of that is keeping romance optional, keeping it like part of part of the game, but not something that's like jammed in your face or. Forced down your throat. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the sorry, the just <laughs> every once in a while someone someone writes you a post you're like, I am forcing this. Why do you keep using that imagery? So, <laughs> stop that. So here's the thing. Um, what what we tend to do is we we you know we kind of philosophy that that you know romantic interaction is part of that kind of grand heroic storytelling, right? You know. Uh, uh, it's the guy gets the girl, or the girl gets the girl, or the you know, boy gets the boy, I don't really care. It's the kind of thing where, where we're always striving for connection, right? And the connection between your characters can sometimes be, you know, um, affection. Sometimes it's humor, you know, the, the good buddy, Varric kind of moments, right? And, and sometimes um, it's antithony. Right? You, you, you hate this guy, right? You know, uh, uh, our strongest characters, I've always said, are the ones that divide, right? So, uh, well, there's Fenris in the audience, right? There's people who absolutely love Fenris, right? Um, and, and there are others who dislike Fenris. Because he's moody and wastes all that wine, man. Um, which, you know, fair point. So, uh, you know, as, as a general approach, we, we, we try to make it part of the game. So, uh, with Inquisition, we sat down and, and said, um, we, we looked at who the, the different characters were. We never do it really based on, you know, oh, this is a fan favorite, that kind of thing. But we did um, we did decide to do the ones that made the most sense, the kind of people that, that the Inquisitor might interact with. So, two names I'll start with. They're not the only romances in the game, but I know lots of people are curious. Um, so, Cassandra Pentagas. Because she's awesome. <laughs> and um, I don't know if any of you saw the Twitters recently. But there were some suggestions that perhaps we had a certain knight commander slash captain. Yeah. There's going to be some color. We figured, hey man, three games, let's give him a shot. You go for it, buddy. And if you act a little weird around the mages, good for you. So there you go. That, 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 that's, that's your candy for you. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not saying any more details because the gentleman never kisses and tells him. <laughs> I, I really like you guys changed the lights. That's, that's, that's classy. That's the only reason why I I spent all of the money on the lights was for that reveal. <laughs> Just that. Now, totally we, now I'm going to call them and have them um, uninstall them. <laughs> just get it all, just get it all down. 
just going to go back to basics. Yeah, bare walls and some humorous stickers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We'll just put up some little uh, rainbow stickers and some unicorns. Yeah, that's it. Everyone can leave now. Five more bases close. Are we doing Q&A? Yeah, I, I think, like that part. I, I think it's time for a Q&A. We, we might as well before I shrink the lights. Uh, uh, let, let's do some, some Q&A. Um, I, I have a microphone here. Um, uh, and, and let, 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 let's do this. I'll, I'll run around. Get some exercise. So first, I understand, as you said, you're just coming back from GDC, yes. which is an event all in itself. So what were you uh, representing there? Were you just going for fun? Um, well, I was representing myself mm -hmm. and uh, trying to promote Blackwell, mostly talking to press, doing what I'm doing here. Um, went to the Narrative Game Summit, which was incredible. I've uh, It's a new thing. I think they started it last year. Okay. And I usually go to the Indie Game Summit, but instead I went to... The narrative game summit. There was just so many great talks, and um, how do yeah, they isolate great. that? How do they isolate that from they just what constitutes a narrative game summit? Um, I guess it's more about narrative and story and writing and characters. While the indie game summit is specifically about indie games, um, a lot of postmortems about. Uh, games that came out, things like that. Okay. You think there'd be a lot of crossover. Hopefully there's good stories in games. <laughs> I imagine there is. I imagine there is a lot of crossover. But um, the narrative stuff is for people specifically interested in narrative, which I am. So I basically lived there for the first two days, and then uh, the rest of the time was mostly press and walking around the expo floor, checking out the IGF, that kind of thing, and catching up with people that I know, which is always fun. Good. Well, we spoke last year about the Blackwell series and yes. some other things. So if you don't mind refreshing the listeners about the basic story of the Blackwell series so we can talk about the newest release. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, it is about a medium and a spirit guide. Uh, the medium is this um, kind of reclusive writer whose only relative dies and she inherits the family ghost. And they basically have to go around saving lost spirits, and over the course of doing that, they uncover some bigger supernatural thing that they have to stop from happening. And they've gotten progressively darker as they go on, and I think um, this last one, which is the last one, there won't be any more, it's the fifth and last one, is probably the, the darkest yet, and I'm, I'm quite happy with how it's turned out. I noticed with the Requiem word. <laughs> Epiphany? Epiphany? Yes. It originally wasn't going to be the last one, but then I decided to make it the last one. Okay. Now, I was privileged enough to play the beta um, a while ago when it first, I uh -oh. guess, was being released to the press, mm -hmm. and uh, had not played the Blackwell series beforehand, so for me, it was just kind of jumping in, like in the third one. Uh, Again, I like the art as I did for the other games. Thought it was neat to see uh, the characters, you know, faces close up when they're speaking, and then otherwise mm. you can move them around. And the voice acting is great. Because, oh, thank you. Yeah, because it's it's funny, you know. A lot of times you're just kind of looking at things and clicking things, and having Joey be so sarcastic the way he is <laughs> is fun. That's Abe. He's great. Yeah. Now it's also a very difficult game. I was surprised. Oh, I, really? Yeah, I found it. I found it challenging to, I mean, maybe it's because I hadn't played the other two, or three, yeah, the other two to kind oh, of... Oh, four. Four? Oh, four. wow. 
So I maybe wasn't up on like some of the mechanics of it, but you know, trying to find the key at the beginning. Oh, <laughs> really, yeah. forty minutes. Oh uh, well, I mean, if you are you do you play a lot of adventure games? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, then I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it it's always amazes me how um, a puzzle that you think is very very easy will stump. Inevitably stump something. <laughs> um, you know, like I, I tried that puzzle to get the key at the beginning. I kind of was trying to make, you know, it was maybe there was a little bit of confusion, so I made it even easier because it's the very first puzzle. And people still got stuck. So, you know, what can I do? Yeah. <laughs> it was still fun to hear Joey run around and be sarcastic about every single thing you tried to do. I won't just blow on everything. <laughs> yes, it's an elevator shaft. Yes, that's. Uh, <laughs> there were a lot of uh, jokes about blowing on things when uh, during the voiceover sessions. No doubt, no doubt. So, what would you like people to know about this final? Do you think people will feel, um, I guess, satisfied because there has been so much clamor? You know, can yeah. you make more Blackwell? Um, I most likely won't make any more Blackwell. Okay. Uh, I think it has a pretty definitive ending. Although, with ghosts and any kind of supernatural thing, there's always a window to to, to bring it back. But um, or at least continue it in some form. But for now, I really, I really want to move on to other things. I am Blackwell's been a part of my life for almost eight years now, at least in terms of making the games. It goes back even longer than that because I've had the idea for for so long and had a couple of false starts before I made the first game. So it's been in my head for about twelve years now, something wow. like that. So it's time to move on. And if I do come back to it, it'll be a while from now, I think. So, um, was that your question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just you think the fans will feel they've had their conclusion? Oh yeah, I think it definitely it has a definitive ending. I like to think it's satisfying. I think that there is a lot of emotional payoff. If you've been following it this whole time, uh, there is a lot you'll like. Okay. Uh, what about the Countess? Um, people are saying they're excited to finally see her in this one, and somehow that's fulfilling as well. Do you? It's not really a spoiler because it's in the demo, so and that's free. You can download it. So it's like she's in the demo. Um, well, well, what about what about it? What's your question? <laughs> um, I guess just the the reaction of people finally not just having a voice, but you know, being able to see mm-hmm. her. Um, have you had any anybody writing about that? Anybody like? Um, Making commentary. Oh, people like that they can see her, and I think they're not quite what they expected. Uh, she's not quite what they expected because <laughs> she's so happy, and or at least not necessarily happy, but fun-loving. Like she likes, she's a good time. She's what they would have called a good time girl back in back in her day. Uh, okay. um, and I had a lot of fun writing her. I kind of wish I uh, did more with her. I always kind of knew who she was in the back of my head. Um, I had a lot of the backstory planned out long time ago, uh, so it's nice to kind of finally do some of that and incorporate some of that backstory into into the game because a lot of the time I think what a lot of uh, developers and writers do is that they come up with this great backstory but they have to they try to incorporate every element into into the product and I don't think that's necessary all of the time it's important for you as the creator to know where all the pieces fit mm-hmm. but it, it shouldn't distract you from telling a specific story um so, I if I, I figured if it didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm all, I'm all babbly here. That's good. <laughs> if I if the whole Countess story didn't really fit, then no big deal. Like I know it's there right. and I know how it fits, so I'll tell a specific story. But I was glad that I could finally sneak her in there because I like the character. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. As long as the world is fully built in your mind, you're going to see hints of that in various things that happen. Yeah. Excellent. Now, last year we spoke about Steam and some of the difficulties uh, getting things on there at times and, and things of that nature. I found it interesting that you launched this game at full price. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be well-received. What do you think about... I guess, is there something about the past where people have constantly discounted games? Does it raise the value in people's minds somehow, saying, like, my work is worth this, and just, you know, asking for it? A part of that, I think there was a, a bit of a backlash. For a while, there was this race to the bottom in terms of pricing, and I sort of fell into that a little bit, like, oh, yeah, you know, I want people to get excited by about this on the first day, so I'm going to do a you know, a, a week one discount and have all of these offers and add all these Christmas decorations to it. And I, I realized that's kind of harmful. Um, and I also lowered my price as well. I used to sell everything from, uh, this is all jingling and everything, but whatever. Um, I used to sell everything at fourteen ninety nine, And then uh, the logic was that, okay, yeah, I could lower my prices, but with the um, number of sales I'd be able to get make up for that loss, mm. that lower price. And um, it used to be no, but then I got on Steam. And I thought, well, yeah, this is such a, a huger, huge audience, and they will respond better to a cheaper game. So I figured it was worth it then. But there were there's so many games on Steam now. Yeah. I mean, they really did open the floodgates, and there's so many games getting greenlit, um, even games that got canceled. Uh, it's it's kind of nuts. <laughs> Goat Simulator has been... <laughs> well, apparently that, I haven't played it, but it looks really fun. So, you know. um, but like games that like the, the creators have said they've canceled them. Like, we're not making this game, but the game is still on green light, and oh. it gets greenlit. You know, it's, it's they're really open the floodgates. So there's this worry that uh, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot because... So many games are, you know, there's so many games coming in, people are paying less for them, they're kind of devalued. So I decided, and I've noticed this backlash among senior developers, people are, you know, I think it was uh, Democracy 3, launched full price, $25, which is almost unheard of, uh, no day one discounts. And, you know, the, the game's like sold like a hundred million thousand zillion copies. Uh, he's doing really well. And I, I see that and I see what other people are doing. And I just decided, you know what? Screw that. I'm bringing my price back up to 15 bucks. And I did. And no launch discounts, no nothing. And the game is selling twice as much as the previous Blackwell game by far, uh, at least in terms of pre-orders. So it's doing really well. And there hasn't been one single complaint that I raised the price. No one's even noticed. And that is a lesson, because the people who are going to buy on day one, they want, they actually want it. You don't need to incentivize them to buy it um, or to, to sell it cheaper, because they actually, they're the ones who want it. Right. So why why do that? That's just, that's just bad business and stuff. So uh, yeah, so I didn't do any uh, launch discounts this time. And I raised the price, which is crazy. <laughs> You've had some nice coverage for it. Uh, rock, paper, shotgun, mm -hmm. nice article, things like that. Definitely doing the press rounds. How do you feel this compares to maybe the other four um, 
as far as like coverage. It seems suddenly I'm hearing your name everywhere, and I was like, I know you. I'm I glad you, to you. I'm glad you think that. Awesome. Um, when you're constantly googling yourself every five seconds, <laughs> uh, you, you think, oh man, no one's writing about me. <laughs> but it's obviously not everyone's going to be looking uh, googling me every five seconds. So um, <laughs> it's it's good that you you say that. Uh, it, it feels really good. I know, especially at the beginning, it was so much harder to get any kind of coverage. I mean, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, it took them six or seven months to finally review Gemini Rue, and that was our oh. biggest game ever. Um, I think it helps that uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun specifically got a lot of, um, got some staff on board who are really into point-and-click adventure games. Richard Cobbett, especially. John Walker really likes them. And also, I'm kind of benefiting from the whole uh, resurgence of um, adventure games, like with the Double Fine uh, Kickstarter, and a lot of those are... The success of that has made people talk about these games. Mm -hmm. so something that's like, oh yeah, there's, there's this guy who's been making them all along. Let's talk to that guy. And so I'm definitely benefiting from that. And it's definitely nice that I don't have to... You know, I'm, I'm working harder than I ever have. The games are much bigger, but at the same time, uh, I get a lot more bang for my buck in terms of... Uh, PR and things like that, because um, we've reached a point now where people are interested in what we have to say, despite how babbly and stammery I might be right now. No, not at all. <laughs> so sorry. No. It makes these interviews twice as long as they should be. No, that's excellent. Um, so yeah, it feels really good. What do you think about the bigger companies like Double Fine doing Kickstarters? Uh, have you done them before? Because I didn't know. You guys seem to just come out as no, they are. I haven't. No, for someone like a smaller company, you know, it seems like maybe more inclined to do something like that rather than somebody who's already like well funded with a lot of other games. What's your opinion on like something big, a bigger company doing that, and and why have you chosen not to? Um, maybe I don't. A, I don't need to, but uh, also, I. The main reason why I haven't done it yet is because we have so much going on. Um, <laughs> I decided if I was gonna do it. Well, let me answer the first part of your question. How do I feel about big companies doing it? I have no problem with it. I think one of the great things about Kickstarter is that any any big company or any company or anyone who's smart about business and you know they want to use every tool they can. And one great thing that Kickstarter can do, which I think a lot of people forget, is that it enables you to. Um, they shouldn't see not getting funded as a failure. I see if I was going to do a Kickstarter for, let's say, a higher def game. Like, you know, the one thing people want from us, they want better graphics. And I know that that triples the production, you know, yes. quadruple, you know, the time and money and, and effort spent in making a higher resolution game. They don't realize, double the resolution, you quadruple the work. It takes a lot more time and money. And that's a bigger risk for someone like me. So I would go to Kickstarter to see if the market is actually there. Like, all right, uh, in a way, it sort of feels like I'm blackmailing my audience. All right, you want this? Then I'm doing a Kickstarter. If it gets funded, I'll do it. And if it doesn't, if I don't get that money through Kickstarter, then I know. I know the market's not there. And think of all that time and money and effort that I've saved. Hmm. So that's actually, I see that as a good thing either way. Because uh, I, know, I know, like, okay, good. I didn't waste all that time and money. I'll just go back to doing my regular stuff. Hmm. And I, I, I see no problem with a bigger company, which has a lot more to lose than I, you know, right. than I do, um, going to Kickstarter to see if the, there's a market for something. I see no problem with that. And point. I, you know, like you use any tool you can. 
And I think that uh, for someone who's really struggling to get their Kickstarter money, and if they like, and you get the people who are maybe $10,000 short, so they put it in themselves, I think that sort of defeats the point. If you were struggling to get to that point, then you know the market's not there. So just, you've, you've, you've saved all that time. It's like you've, um, I see it as like, it's sort of like they paid you, you're selling it, like the people are giving you money before the game comes out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, that's how I see it. And it's a good I, assessment I tool. I mean, I haven't considered it like that. I, I definitely see it that way. So do you plan to do anything like that, or you just, just feel like... Eventually. Um, there is uh, our next internal project. We were thinking of uh, going, of doing that. I mean, I'd have to design something and have something to show. Right. I can't just hop on a Kickstarter. You can't do that anymore. You can't just hop on and say, I'm doing a thing. Give me a million dollars. You need to have something to show. Uh, I think at this point I have a uh, bigger, I have a bit of clout and a bit more of a, um, I have a bit more customer faith than others would. So a lot of people wonder why I haven't done it yet. But it also seems to be a colossal headache. I mean, doing a Kickstarter campaign. It really is. Um, there was one that just got funded today called Dead Synchronicity, mm -hmm. which uh, they, I didn't think it was going to make it. But at the last minute, they just surged ahead and they did it. But you look at their comments and it's basically them just, you know, hyping each other up for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm just like... I don't know if I have that kind of energy. <laughs> I just want to make the game. Yeah, it does distract a lot. Unfortunately, in a position where I can, I can do that, so I can just focus on the games. and I don't need Kickstarter. That's basically the reason why I haven't done it. Makes sense. Okay. Anything else? Uh, where can people find this if they want to, to know more? You know, they want Wadget to Wagetigames.com. And spell it like we do every time. That's Wadget with a J. W A D J E T. Or here's an easier one, uh, rosablackwell.com. That just forwards you right to the uh, the purchase page for Blackwell Epiphany. So that's easier, rosablackwell.com. That takes you right to our website. And the demo is now available for everyone, right? Yeah, it's, uh, for free. Mm -hmm. um, there will hopefully be a demo on GOG next week. Um, so you can get it there as well if you want to pre-order on GOG. Um, but the demo on my website is free for everyone. Anyone can, uh, anyone can nab it. See, it's surprising for me that people fuss about the graphics because, yes, they are, they just feel nostalgic to me, like they harken back to when I was a kid playing them. So that's why, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, the style is very familiar to me. Thank you. So and I'm I surprised people fuss. They're like, oh, we want realistic, like more, you know, realistic characters? What does what yeah, they want? I, I think that, like, with, I, I, yeah, I originally did the pixel art because it was all I could afford. It was a budget thing. But now it's just kind of, I'm used to it. I, I like it. Mm -hmm. And there's, I don't see it as being a throwback or being retro because I'm doing more things with the pixel, with um, pixels than you ever could back in the early 90s. I mean, you couldn't do Spice, half no. the things. <laughs> you couldn't do transparencies or alpha channels or, you know, particle effects. You couldn't do any of that back then. So it's, uh, I wouldn't really call it retro. I mean, it feels retro. It's more that it evokes the same feeling. It, it how do you how do I explain this so I don't sound so pretentious? Um, it <laughs> makes it. you. Uh, it gives you the the feeling of the feeling that you get when you think about those older games, but not when you actually play them. Because <laughs> when you go back and play those old games, inevitably the memory is better. It, it is. evokes the memory of the games, but isn't actually like them. I guess that's a better way of putting it. Um, because. 
I mean, you, you play. I played. Uh, what you call it? Uh, the Shadowrun mm. the, that was on Kickstarter, which I love, um, and I was playing it. I'm like, oh yeah, this this just makes me feel like I'm you know like in my early 20s playing Planescape. And then I looked at Planescape, and I'm like, no, it's nothing like it actually, <laughs> but it feels like it is. Uh, it's hard to explain. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. You have a wonderful memories of things. Even for me, like a couple of years ago, the graphics have improved so much in gaming. Mm. Like even Mass Effect One, go back and play Mass <laughs> Effect One, and I'll be like, oh. They remember this better. I still uh, I remember playing Jade Empire a few years ago, and it still looked good. I still liked it. But uh, but yeah, I know. 3D graphics don't age as well as, as, as yeah. 2D graphics do. So state your name and rank. Name and rank. Uh, I am Aaron Young-Johan, and I am a citizen at Behemoth Town. No, I'm the uh, lead level designer for BattleBlock Theater, and also uh, involved in projects of the future, which I cannot discuss. Which are currently codenamed Game, because that's what we do. <laughs> that's the best creative name. Right. We, I, I will say, we've had a, a bunch of amazing names. Um, we just don't want to build uh, the incorrect expectation because a lot of the time the game outgrows the name. So, yeah, uh, Battleblock Theater was, you know, a stage um, long before there were cats and everything else. Um, but it, the idea of it being um, Theater came later. So if we named it early, it would have been gotcha. a bummer. Okay. Uh, playing Battle Block Theater. I really enjoyed that. Obviously on a machine this time. What is it going to release for, for the general public? Is it going to be, says it's going to be a Steam game? XBLA was last year. We just passed our one-year anniversary, which is exciting. And it was perfectly timed with the beta that we've been doing on Steam. So that's been really cool. Our... We have a, a new usability team that's been charting everybody's responses and the problems that they've been finding, which have been uh, happily minor. So, Is it open beta? It was not an open beta. Uh, and there's always the potential that we'll do another beta, but we're just not sure. We're still sort of compiling the data from the previous one to figure out what we really need. Um, yeah, we're getting all our ducks in the line. So we're, we're definitely geared for this year uh, Steam release, which is awesome. Because yes. I have a lot of PC snob friends. Uh, who have not played Battle Block Theater, um, and hopefully now they will. So, I, I and I'm to some degree uh, sort of going back a long time PC snob myself. I I definitely uh, you know was enjoying my Duke Nukem's and my my 46 and everything. So I understand if if you love your mouse and keyboard, I understand. Yes, I, I am a Steam fan, definitely. So yeah. I have an Xbox, but it's it's a little used to my Steam. Yeah, we're kind of in between generations right now, so, you know. I think everybody's sort of waiting to see where the shoe, when the shoe drops. Let's see. I don't know what the metaphor is for that. Yes. Yes. When the other shoe drops. Where and when and all of that. So using the machines, the arcade kind of version, uh, it's unusual. I mean, a lot of times you'll see people sitting down at the desk playing the PC, all that stuff. Mm. Is there a reason to start with that and then to move over to, you know, because I'm thinking, like, it must be difficult to rearrange the entire scheme of the game three times, essentially, is what you're going to end up doing. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, the, again, back to the usability. Um, and playtesting is a huge component for us. Um, I mean, for Steam, we have, we have an in-house lab for that now, which is great because it's a lot more difficult with our current setup and the arcade cabinets to be testing that yeah. here. Um, but yeah, figuring out the controls and everything really helps when you have thousands of people at a show like PAX. Uh, playing it, and then we get to see what's awkward and what's not. And you just like the nostalgia aspect of machines? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's. I feel like that's the, possibly the way the game should have been all along. You know, like, I, I could see Castle Crashers in a 7-Eleven. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The liquor store across the street. Um, yeah, so it was just an opportunity to do something cool and new. And it's possibly a little harder to use the joystick and, and just you know. Just familiarity. Compared to, yeah, compared to using a controller. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's always a little bit trickier, but I think it's totally worth it there. They're pretty awesome. Will you add features based on the, you know, you have you know, 15 buttons or 12 buttons versus, you know, six on your arcade? Actually, yeah, we already kind of did. Um, it's it's uh, like one of the things we did. And it's also just a chance to sort of sit on it for a year and, and, and just find other things that we wished for it. Um, one of those is now you can, uh, the weapons in Battle Dog Theater, you, now you'll be able to cycle through them, um, which adds a lot to it, especially uh, the arena mode where, you know, now I can use the fan and then my buddy can switch to the acid bubble and blow his I can blow his acid bubble <laughs> through somebody's face um, it's all that sort of thing for you to like plan out ahead of time and you got your one trick pony and now if you've been investing more time in the game and you've been unlocking all these different we- uh, weapons you'll have more opportunities to do cool stuff like that so and it also uh, as a level designer uh, gives me the opportunity to create possibly in the future uh, levels to download that'll actually take advantage of the ability to switch between weapons. Um, because it was a little bit uh, ponderous, the way we had it set up before, just just going through and switching, um, I didn't want to force people to do that too much. But now, if it's, you know, associated with a quick button press, then, yeah, a lot easier. Yeah, it should be fun. These things. Well, can you, I guess, summarize for the listeners about a block theater and the basic story <laughs> behind it? For those who have not seen it, I love it because the more the more condensed the summary, the more psychotic it sounds. Uh, <laughs> Battle Block Crazy Theater. Crazy cats watching death. Yes, exactly. Uh, it is you and three hundred of your very best friends uh, crash landing on an island uh, where there is a seemingly abandoned theater, and then it turns out that it's not so abandoned after all. And your very very best friend Hattie Haddington, who doesn't have a hat by the way, uh, is captured by the cats and then forced to wear a hat. Um, which you find out is uh, possessed by some malevolent force. And he takes part in capturing you and forcing you to go on uh, deadly dangerous stage plays for the cat's amusement. Uh, recreating, I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but recreating what the theater was all about for, for uh, in years past. So, yeah, it's sort of, somebody's had a great metaphor for it. It's like, it's like the running man with cats. So, <laughs> like, if you can imagine the, the uh, you know, the evil that a cat is capable of. Because they give you that look sometimes. Yes. Yeah. So, if you can imagine them forcing Arnold Schwarzenegger to go through everything that he has to go through in Running Man. But, but more so, because they're, they're cats without real, you know, real morals. I see. Yeah. You know, I saw the snuggle bear, you know, from the fabric softener. Yes. He had replaced his eyes with cat's eyes, and it was the most frightening thing I think I've ever seen. That sounds terrifying. It was. Yeah, we, we have a, a little Easter egg in, in Battle Block Theater called Honey Hug Bear. And Honey Hug shows up a few times, and he's got these sort of, you know, dead shark eyes. Um, and he's got star nipples. I don't, I don't know why. Dan, <laughs> Dan, for whatever reason, felt the need to put star nipples on him. But, uh, yeah, Honey Hug is... is uh, also very creepy. What does he do? He just tries to kill you like the cats do? No, that's what's creepy about him is he just, he's there looming in the oh. background. You'll see him occasionally. Or references to him. I see. Yeah. So is this why the magical hat is so important for you to get it? <laughs> well, mostly you're inspired by friendship. 
you're trying to save Patty, and part of the game is actually it's a. I should have also said it's a puzzle platformer. That's probably important. Um, I mean, it's it's it it's kind of everything I always wanted to do in a platforming game. So you've got like Sonic the Hedgehog style, like whip through the level real quick, ping pong machine, uh, pachinko machine kind of things, and then you've got more methodical um, timing based puzzles and block puzzles and switch based stuff. And uh, the cooperative aspect adds a whole other dimension where, you know, it's, all right, you stand here, then throw me onto that, which will then unlock a door, but also three buzzsaws that are going to come kill you now if you don't move. And it's a lot of fun seeing that go wrong because we don't really punish you when you it's die. Like you just respawn. Well, the cats like it too. So, but anyway, getting back to the story, you're trying to pick up gems because you then use those gems in the levels uh, at the gift shop to unlock your fellow friends. Who are prisoners? Uh, for, uh, we're prisoners, and you could then get to play as those prisoners. So, sort of view it as like a little big planet meets Apes Odyssey. I can totally see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, I, I kind of go to uh, Lost Vikings personally. Yeah, it just it's. I mean, Lost Vikings, the, the abilities were built into the characters rather than in the environments. So maybe Apes Odyssey is actually a better a better comparison. But yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's like I said, it kind of does a bunch of different things, which is neat. Um, one of the things that I really like about it, I mean, we've got the, the level editor like a little big planet does, but it's a lot snappier. I mean, you, you can't, you're not going to be making Legend of Zelda in Battle Block Theater the way you can in Little Big Planet, but you will be able to make something fun and diabolical and uh, be able to upload it and share it with your friends within 10, 15 minutes. So that's really cool. So people can knock stuff out. We've got an amazing uh, community of people making content that like at this point I'm, I'm seeing stuff and going wow how did I not how did I not think of that that's amazing that's so clever uh, and that's really really neat that here I am years into this project and I'm still seeing new things such simple components but I, you put these blocks together or these weapons together um, in specific ways and I'm still getting surprised like new ways new mechanisms you know this catapult fires this character onto this lava block that bounces them onto this trigger and then slides them along ice blocks that does another trigger and then back and forth with fans and it activates things and, and, and deactivates things in this like machine. It's almost like a Rube Goldberg machine that's constantly making things happen. And people make some incredible, really cool things. So it's a lot of fun. How do you reconcile the, the fact that some people are just going to play one player and it is much more fun to... It's like, you know, you almost need that cooperation in certain areas. It is really a, about what you're there for. Uh, for me, I almost feel like platformers, in a sense, like if you're a platformer purist, um, they're almost like a racing game. Like you're, you're, you're competing with yourself to get the best time. For me, platforming, uh, platforming games, are like, at, like when, it's, when they're really, like when I'm really doing well, I feel like I'm... Um, going through one amazing moment to another and it's it's almost like this like a roller coaster you know that, that you're making happen and I uh, the single player game for me like you don't have the other person there and so you lose that dynamic but it's streamlined because of that right you're not waiting for somebody else you're not working with somebody else you're, and the actual levels are customized to play uh, when you're playing single player to play by yourself so with second person the levels are actually remixed to involve that second person. So it's actually, uh, when you're playing by yourself, everything is customized for you to play like that, and it's tighter because of it. Uh, so puzzles are reworked, and 
it allowed it allowed me as a level designer to make it much more. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it, it allowed me to put the player through their paces more because I could tighten things up in a way that would be too cramped for two players and, and really sort of allow the player to feel like they were mastering the, 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 the moves and the mechanics of the game. So, I actually personally, I don't know if anybody else in my company feels this way, but I personally like playing single player more just because I, it, it, it gives me that feel of playing through the old classic platformers where you know it's just me trying to bounce through this environment as fast as possible and get the best score because that's the other thing is if you get the best time and you and you get all the collectibles in the game you get an A plus plus and I I'm one of those players where I can't move to the next level until I get the A plus plus on the previous level and I don't necessarily want to uh, work with somebody and wait for them to to master it with me you know yes so you'll be that person that when you finally do play with a second player you'll have all the stuff to switch through and they'll have like three things <laughs> right, and one of the goals for us was making sure that that second player who is less experienced um, or hasn't been playing them for 30 years, this genre, the way I have, <laughs> which is plenty of people, um, that they aren't left in, in the lurch. Um, one of the best things, and, and I was a little, uh, I questioned the idea at first, but one of the best ideas that we had, uh, or excuse me, that Dan, our lead artist had, was if you hold down a button, your guy explodes, yeah. and then you pop in next to your buddy. So that way, if you if you can't keep up, you can always do that, and then you're back playing with your your buddy, your dad, your dad who can't keep up. Maybe you know, <laughs> I don't want stereotype. So right, right. <laughs> so how did you end up getting involved in this and getting into level design in itself? Ah, uh, it was uh, a lot of being at the right place at the right time, and just being a real big fan and seeing the opportunity for what it was, I guess. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of years in the industry. I was doing, uh, I was doing QA work. I was uh, doing a lot of uh, working with the community on a few games in the past. Uh, and I was shocked. My wife actually found it. I was in the middle of trying to get my degree. <laughs> and my, my wife found uh, on Craigslist, the behemoth was advertising a spot. I was like, no, that can't be. They're here? I, didn't, I had no idea that they were in San Diego where I was living. And, uh, yeah, I, I signed on to do some QA stuff for them. And, thankfully, Battle Block Theater was around, and they gave... It's a small enough company that everybody sort of had an opportunity mm -hmm. to voice their ideas and whip up a few levels or, or whatever else. And having spent a lot of years not having that opportunity, I jumped all over it as, as much as I could. So that when it came time to say, okay, we really need to... You know, we figured out the basic mechanics. We need to actually create content and lots of content. Does anybody have anything? Uh, you know, I raised my hand up. Uh, yeah, got some things. See what you think. And yeah, kind of went from there. So now we've got hundreds and hundreds of levels. And that's before you get to the downloadable content. So it's a lot of game. It's a lot of game for fourteen ninety nine or whatever, however many points that used to be. So. And when do you expect this to be available? Uh, it's on XBLA now. It has been for the last but year. For but for Steam. But snotty people like me will play for Steam. <laughs> Well, and, and, and many people I know, and myself. I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to have my Xbox necessarily set up. Um, in 30 years, I'll probably be still have BBT installed on my computer on Steam. Um, it, we don't really know yet. Again, we just finished the beta, so we're sort of trying to figure out the data from that. 
but you know we were confident this year. Um, so that's a start. There was another game you were showing there as well, correct? Besides Battlefield Theater, we have uh, Alien Hominid, our first, our first big release, and then uh, Castle Crashers. We have a four-wide Castle Crashers station. I don't know if anybody who's played the uh, the, the old X-Men double-wide arcade cabinets that used to be at every like family fun center. Um, and then that's what the Castle Crashers, the four-wide arcade cabinet. That's kind of the super fun. Fame, yes. That was that was our big big splash. Yeah, and I think it was a combination of things. I mean, I. Even I, uh, I, I had no idea how much content was in that game. Um, I, I think there was a false expectation based on arcade, actual arcade games like it, where you would put in quarters every minute or two because they were punishingly hard to make people pump in more quarters. And they were about, to, I mean, and because they knew how much people were going to be dying, they, they, the games were only, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. Um, Castle Crashes is like five some odd hours, and that's before you do insane mode and unlock all the characters. I had no idea as a fan that you could beat the game with one character, unlock another character, beat the game with that character, unlock another character. You basically, anybody you saw in that game, you could play as that character. And that's, I mean, that's huge. And then the game campaign actually goes on for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. So that's really cool. And um, so there was there was that. Um, it was one of the first games I remember on XBLA where I thought, wow, that's a real... That's a game. Like, that's a substantial game. It's not just, you know, um, oh, cool, I can play Solitaire on my Xbox. Yeah. You know, like, I, I can actually play something that I can see that might have been on a disc or, or been in an arcade or something like that. So that's, that was really cool. And then, uh, you know, they were really, our, our thing, I, I can't really claim anything for myself for that game, but, I mean, it, it was sort of the start of trying to make um, our games more approachable and, and appeal to a broader audience. And I don't, not necessarily in a lowest common denominator kind of way, but in a polish sort of way and, and making sure that the difficulty was, was, was scaled and it was approachable and you could start the game. Anybody could start, could pick, pick up a controller and play Castle Crashers. And yes, it gets more difficult, but um, pretty much anybody who plays that game can finish that game. And the same goes for Battle Block Theater, um, which is great because we have, it's got one of the best, I'll try to be objective about it, but it's got one of the best endings, I think, of all time. So, I'm glad that we didn't, you know, the, the barrier for entry isn't too high. So, How long do you expect the game is in its entirety if you play it just single player first? Longer than Castle Crashers, which is impressive. I mean, it's uh, uh, seven, eight hours, okay. um, which is a pretty good size, I think, for a platformer. Um, and that's if you really know what you're doing and you're, and you're going through it pretty mm-hmm. steadily. I mean, I think our QA team's got it down to maybe five or six. Um, and if... Poor bastards! I know we've made them go through it on insane mode, which is the uh, you saw how often people were dying in that yes. game. Um, well, that's fine because you just pop in next to your friend, and it's fine. We actually kind of did that on purpose a little bit to add to the mischievousness of it that you kill your buddy, and it doesn't matter. They <laughs> just pop back in, this. and but if you want, um, just like in Castle Crashers, you can turn on insane mode, and then if either person dies, it resets the level. Which uh, that was sort of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even played it that long, and I can see that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not playing with you. I'm not playing with you. You, you get really, so mad. You get so mad at people. Right. And, and they did get angry, but it was funny because my first uh, version of that campaign was substantially harder than it is now and wisely toned it down. But I remember the QA team, who I thought was going to have a big sigh of relief. Oh, we don't have to play this in insane mode with it being this hard anymore. It was actually disappointed because they had gotten so good at it that they were... <laughs> 
<laughs> that they were actually like, oh, it's, it's fine. Everybody should be okay with this. And we wisely toned it down because it, it was, you lose a little bit of perspective after a while. Uh, it, you, you know, how rough it, it actually is if you haven't mastered all of the mechanics in the game. Um, and there's always room. I mean, we, there's downloadable stuff now. And, and, you know, we've talked about doing stuff ourselves and putting downloadable content out of harder versions of the levels or just stuff that really pushes it. And uh, every chapter, as it is, has uh, encore levels that are all completely optional, that are just much, they use similar mechanics as the rest of the chapter, but much more difficult. So if you are one of those players where you want an extra challenge, play it on insane mode, get all A pluses, including encore, and then if you're still disappointed that it's not hard enough, talk to me. Uh, I clearly am doing something wrong. <laughs> so. It's a very fast game. It feels like, you know, it's more reactionary than you'll find out in a lot, a lot of areas because you're just kind of bouncing along and you just have to sort of make good decisions and visually, you know, instantaneously without having to... And there's sections where you pause to help you with it, but a lot yeah. of it was just... Ooh. A lot of that's the, the Dan's, Dan's art. It's just, yeah, everything's animated and... and it's moving. Eye-popping. Yeah. Fire rainbows. At the same time, I, a lot of that's also because of the demo. We wanted to make sure that anybody who just started playing it, we'd get a sense of just sort of fun things bouncing off of things um, aspect to it. But it, it, as you go on, there are definitely, uh, with like chapter seven is one of my favorites of the eight chapters in the game, and that's because the levels are actually designed as one giant interlocking puzzle. And those really will make you stop and go, okay, wait a minute. Because it's, it's they're, they're all of a sudden things aren't linear, or maybe you have to go through the level multiple times. Like you'll go through it once and flip a switch, and then the entire level changes. To, you know, with, with various triggers activating other blocks and, and all of a sudden it's a completely different story and you've got to go through it again um, and figure out the brand new path. So, the, so things like that, it does, the complexity of it does ramp up to the point where there are times where you want to just go, whoa, okay, whoa, <laughs> let's take a stock of the situation and figure out what to do next. So You're a fan of Portal, aren't you? I am a fan of Portal. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, it's funny to, to draw that comparison, but there's definitely some Portal-esque puzzles in it. I mean, not, not the least of which because we have Portals in our game. I mean, not the trademark portal, right. but yes. <laughs> portal not yet. Okay. Anything else you think people should know as we wrap up? Um, if you have played Battleblock Theater on XBLA, still check it out on Steam. At least, you know, keep your, your ear to the track because there's, there's definitely some changes like the, the weapon change I mentioned. Uh, there'll be some cool stuff. It'll have its own library of downloadable content. So if you've played what the community has to offer... Uh, on XBLA, you'll find a whole different audience with a whole, you know, making all different things on Steam, which is really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing with that community. Who, who, I mean, there's a lot more level editors available on Steam, it seems to me. So I'm, I'm interested to see what that market does with that. Um, so that's exciting. And then, of course, uh, you know, as soon as we have something to say about Game 4, yeah. the mysterious Game 4, um, you know, if you, if you have a chance to come by the booth, we do have a couple Easter eggs, so you can see... Some things, little hints here and there. So I'm really excited about it, uh, both as a as a designer and as a as a player. Um, it, it should be it should be exciting stuff. I wish I could say more. I really do. No, no. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> so beginning off, thank you for being here. Thanks for anything? having me. Yeah. You mind saying like your whole Brian, game developer, owner of, of you know Phoenix Fire. The whole title. The whole title. Wow. Well, it's not as regal as I would like, but it is. Uh, well, I'm one half of Phoenix Fire. We're a husband wife team, and we're both ex AAA developers, is what you know people say. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, we started the company in uh, 2010. And uh, our first game that we put out went to the top 10. It was a little iPhone game uh, called uh, Roboto. And then since then, we've been incubating all kinds of stuff. And uh, fast forward to 2014, and now we're here with Source. How is that going from AAA with you know so many people, large budgets, all that, down to an indie game you're kind of just handling yourself? Yeah, oh my god. So, <laughs> well, I was the lead environment artist on a number of projects. Um, my last big project was StarCraft Ghost. Oh, wow. At Blizzard. Yeah. Um, and that was a bit of a challenge. We were internally trying to make that game look like it had been in development for six years when it was really just one year because... When I came in, it was Swinging Ape Studios. I don't know if you know the whole history, but it was Swinging Ape Studios, took it over from Nihilistic, and and then uh, uh, we, it kept being shown at E3, and there's all this you know, pressure and expectations. Anyway, I was really used to doing and outputting a ton of environments in a very short amount of time. And uh, you kind of learn that as an environment artist. It, there's you know, These worlds are really big, mm-hmm. and the, I kind of see the environment artist as like, the bass player of the band. <laughs> you know, they're kind of the unsung hero. Everyone looks at the character artists and like, oh, wow. You're, you know, you're the <laughs> yeah. one front and center and everything. And, uh, you know, but it's really the environments I think really draw people in. So, uh, you know, I was always used to like, you know, working and, you know, working long hours and, and outputting a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So being an indie for me hasn't really been so much of a change. It's just been like the shackles have come off okay. in a way. Which is, which is really cool. <laughs> Plus, I like doing all kinds of different things. I love programming. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I love uh, designing. So it's really kind of opened, uh, opened me up to kind of just be more of that generalist you know, sort of thing. My wife, on the other hand, only, like, I'm trying to get her to do anything else. <laughs> she will only like do 3D art. I'm trying to get her okay. to help out with, like, hey, can you help out with the website? There's so many things you need to do as an indie. Yeah, you know? you're all on your own pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, hey, can you help out with social media? And she's like, she doesn't even have her own Facebook page. Uh, that's, that would be a big stretch then to throw her into the deep end. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, Phoenix Fire is a little bit of a family business. I, um, I recently brought on my sister. Hmm. to help out with social media. And she is super bubbly, super friendly. Everybody loves her. So she's doing a fantastic job, uh, you know, helping with the community management, which is good because it helps me focus on the game and focus on, you know, a lot of the art and stuff. So it's kind of how we're functioning so far. (laughs) I like to ask this question of husband and wife teams. You know, how, how does that work for you? Are you always, like in each other's space all the time, and then how do you coordinate on who handles what? I know environmental design, but I'm not quite sure, like sometimes the execution, does that mean you're actually programming in things, you're doing the art for it, you laying it out so other people know that this is, you know, the way it is? How, what encompasses environmental design? Yeah, so first of all, it's extremely unhealthy. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Talk about work, 24 Oh yeah, it never leaves. And we we work from home too. Okay. So that's adding injury to insult, right? (laughs) So we'll be, uh, you know, we'll we'll be having dinner and um, we'll be talking about the baby. Mm -hmm. Instantly transition into talking about a new gameplay feature. You know, it's just part of conversation, right? right? You know, um, and there's no turning it off. You know, uh, we've tried to do something where it's like, hey, only these hours are set aside for game development. It just, as much as we try, it just doesn't work. It just always kind of comes up. So uh, it's, but it's fun. It's a, it's a, it's a passion. 
I would be doing this anyway. Like if I were working, you know, at a bank or something like that, I would, I, I, I'd get to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm done. Clock out at five o'clock and go and develop games. So. Okay. So you'd be doing it anyway. I'd be doing it anyway. Be your hobby. Right. If That's I, the best you get paid for your hobby. Right. Like, you know, if I won the lottery, well, what would I do? Exactly the same <laughs> thing I'm doing right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, maybe I'd staff up and bring on like one or two people to help out a little bit. <laughs> but pretty much Phoenix Fire working on source, you yeah. know, kind of thing. So when do you um, expect to have maybe something you can play as far as beta? When is the final release? And it, so- it sounded like when I was reading the press release, it was going to be like PS4, Xbox, you know, all that. Like what? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a, a great undertaking. Yeah, so we're working with um, you know Microsoft and Sony, and uh, we're a Unity developer, so they're getting us access to the Unity versions for those platforms. We have a great relationship with Unity, so um, uh, in fact, they're helping us with the publishing of one of our other games that we're working on. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it is a lot to do. We're not scared of that. You know, we just roll up our sleeves and make it happen. Um, but yes, we're, we're very early on in development right now. So we're probably about three to four months in, uh, and this is like a a nights and weekends, three and four months. Three and four months in, really? That's it. Wow. Yeah. From scratch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like, um, almost completed, at least, you know, it's, it's maybe simpler to break it down into one level or something like that, but definitely well fleshed out for the concept and the art and everything else. Right, right. You know, when you attempt a game like this, it's like, okay, how do you how do you do it? And it's it's kind of interesting. Like, the game actually started out as a top down uh, uh, game, um, almost like uh, vehicles in a way. It was really, and I, I could I could show you some of this stuff. You might be interested, but uh, kind of a top down um, sort of Zelda type thing, and the creatures kind of look more a little bit like vehicles or whatever. And then we thought it'd be really cool to kind of go over the edge of that kind of like games like Fez. Remember, you could kind of look at it and then you go to the edge and the whole thing yeah. would kind of turn around. So then the world started to be all these different cubes that you could be and you could traverse over all six sides and the camera would then follow you. Mm-hmm. And we were working on it like that. And then sort of the, the changing point was the birth of our son. Um, and, and what really kind of inspired us was, wow, you know, an infant when they're born, they're seeing everything for the first time. And so what is that like? Put yourself in their shoes. They don't know what anything's supposed to look like. We all do because we've been, you know, living for, you know, so long or whatever. And uh, just to see him playing with things and interacting with things, it's like, okay, this is way too limited to be, you know, like a, a top-down kind of a thing. Let's take the camera back. Let's go in three dimensions. Let's use our environment art that we have and really start to explore this world, right? And, you know, the inspiration behind the, uh, the butterfly was, you know, mowing the lawn in the back and, and uh, I see little hummingbirds and butterflies kind of flying around. And what do I think to myself as an idiot game developer? I'm thinking, what would it be like to be in an alternate, alternate dimension <laughs> as one of those little hummingbirds? <laughs> and, and what would it be like if all of this was being destroyed or something? What would it be like if, if this balance was being um, harmed? And, and of course, you know, I'm very concerned about, you know, global warming and all that sort of stuff and what we're doing in the environment. And this is kind of a personal piece to that regards as well. Did your wife get very excited when you decided to pull back the camera and make it all 3D? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really helped. See, the thing is, though, is she's a very um, literal artist. She likes, she's, she's what's called a craftsman. Okay. So she likes to be able to form things that look very realistic, 
where my inspiration for art, if we're going to talk like, you know, total classical art is impressionist, you know, like Monet and whatnot, yeah. where you could see the brushstrokes and you look at it and it's not totally, you know, photorealistic. It's very, it's very sort of, well, it's expressionistic, mm -hmm. right? And, and I love that stuff. I love the surreal stuff. We're both huge fans of Dali, where it is a very strange, you know, tripped out kind of, and that was in the 20s. Like, that's so far ahead. You know, that was pretty awesome stuff. And, of course, I loved Tron, you know. I, I could see that inspiration, definitely yeah, so. Very yeah. LED and a lot of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a... I'm a a child of the 80s, so I had, you know, Tron hit me hard, um, uh, Atari, anything Atari, you know, and, mm -hmm. and if you looked at, you know, Space Invaders and, and all that kind of stuff, it was a really dark background, and it was very sort of illuminated characters and, and, and uh, you know, objects and whatnot, like asteroids, Yeah. right? And it almost was like a vector art, so, you know, I have that burned in my brain. And then a lot of the design came from, you know, getting the NES playing classics like the Zeldas and the Metroids and all that. And so that is like just deep seated, you know, and, uh, and to, I mean, I remember playing Metroid and just trying to go through every single block in that game to see <laughs> if I could uncover something. There you go. <laughs> the Metroid shirt, yep. 1986. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so when you begin to design your environments, do you get inspiration from things in, in the current world? Like, I find myself sometimes looking at, oh, I look at the ice in Alaska, and there's places that have just been very little explored. You'll see, you know, the top 20 places in the world that no one's ever been, and yeah. they, they seem as bizarre almost as, oh, know, yeah. like, like Avatar in some ways. I love that stuff. Yeah, we look at all kinds of things. We, um, we're huge fans of taking pictures of, of landscapes. So we'll travel around, and, and if anything is interesting or whatever, we'll be driving. This is just a little window into our lives. We'll be driving just down the freeway or something, stuck in traffic. But we'll look out at the sky, and the clouds will be in some kind of really weird formation. And we'll just say to ourselves, if we were to do that and put it in a game, people would say it looked unrealistic because of the, maybe the, the clouds are too angular or something. Mm -hmm. But it just so happens to be that way in this specific time you know, of the day. And that kind of stuff just jumps out to us. Like, we should do something like that, you know? And and when you start drawing all those sorts of little inspirations, you know, especially from nature. Nature, there's so much going on. You know, like canyons, um, you know, that are all, like, wind-blown yeah. and everything. We have pictures of that that we look at. Um, and, uh, yeah, I like what you talked about, the Arctic is really cool. You know, we love that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, deep sea, a lot of uh, uh, barrier reef type stuff. You know, in fact, a lot of the foliage that we have um, and creatures that we have, we look at a lot of, uh, you know, marine life has been a big inspiration there. Because it kind of has this sort of serene sort of vibe to it. Um, the there, and there is moving. a... Yeah, the way they're moving definitely too, almost like they're floating in the water. Right, right, yeah. And there's uh, the bioluminescence that some of the deep sea fish have and everything. So we have, you know, just tons of pictures that we grabbed off of <laughs> Google and we have a big you know, a uh, folder full of all that kind of stuff. How long do you expect the game to be? Is it too early to project that? Or can you just guess? Well, yeah, it's hard because there's puzzles, right? So some people might figure out a puzzle in a second. Some people might take 10 minutes. So if you knew how to unlock every single puzzle and you had to walk through or something, it would probably take you a lot less time than if you were to go all the way through. I mean, obviously, we don't want to make... 
I think a 20-hour game is, could get pretty boring if it's an adventure, <laughs> yes. right? Um, I, like the, I like the idea of, you know, between a two- and three-hour, you know, sort of adventure. I think that feels right. Um, you know, obviously movies are a huge inspiration to us. Uh, well, everybody, right? But <clears throat> specifically the high-adventure stuff. You know, the, uh, the Matrix, the uh, Star Wars movies, the Lord of the Rings movies. The idea that it's up to this unlikely hero who just had this, you know, quest thrown at them. And they're thrown into this situation. And if you look at those movies, you could dissect them through the hero's journey by, you know, um, Joseph Campbell, who I've been studying a lot. You know, this whole, you know, the idea of mythology and that these... All the, it's like the human myth and how it's been bestowed into all these different movies as sort of the backbone of those scripts. And so we're, we're using that in the design of our game and how the different acts, if you will, of the game sort of unfold. Just playing the demo for 15 minutes or so, uh, how would you describe to the listeners, I guess, the basic story of this? You know, the world's falling apart, you're a butterfly. How is this progressing throughout the game? Like, where where does the story go? Well, a lot of that is to be determined. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we're still kind of early on. We want to start introducing non-player characters that okay. will interact with you. But there's no dialogue or anything. It's all visual storytelling. So it's going to be a challenge. Uh, but that'll help with the design. Sometimes when you're when there's something that's this far out there, mm -hmm. it's good to have some boundaries. So if we know what these characters are supposed to do and, and how they're supposed to act, we could design them in a certain way to be expressive in those in those mannerisms. Okay. So we want to have so we have different archetypes kind of planned out, and one of them, of course, is the mentor. You know, somebody like the Morpheus or the Obi Wan Kenobi kind of character, who um, you come across and he starts to show you the way a little bit, maybe even follows you along on your adventure, and maybe even sticks his neck out for you a few times, right? Um, and and you know, so you start to have a relationship with some of these other characters along the way. But it's still, it's still you. You know, you're you're still going all this on your own. So, is your goal to keep the world from falling apart? What is the butterfly's goal? To restore balance. Okay. So, you know, the world is falling apart. Will it come back together? You know, I I can't give that away. What happens when you do find the source of all of this? You know, how do you overcome that? Can you overcome that? What happens when you get to the other side? It's sort of a spiritual game in a way too. There's some elements to it that, I mean, when I play it, I'm hearing the music from Journey in my head. Like, mm. Have you thought about music and how, I mean, that, that seems, this seems like the kind of game that you could play really slowly and just kind of enjoy the visuals while you're solving the stuff. But it seems almost like, uh, like restful or therapeutic in a way, especially depending on how you choose the music as well. That'll definitely set the tone too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're very mindful of music. In fact, the visuals all came from uh, a single soundtrack that we dropped in. I'm a huge um, proponent of when you're developing a game, get your music in right away, first, even. You know, as soon as you have a box on a, on a plane and you're moving that box around as the character, put music in there because it'll inspire you. And it did for us. Like when the game was a top-down, you know, type of thing, we took this on the same audio track that you heard while playing the game, we had in there. So that's been in there this whole time. Ah. And um, 
And as soon as we started playing it and hearing that, we started to want to see certain types of things. We started playing with the shaders. We started playing with the reflections on things, the bioluminescence and all this. And as soon as we started adding some of these things in, it started to come more into focus. Is that something that you wrote, the music? Where did you come up with that? I wish I wrote it. Um, it's actually a, uh, a composer from England who uh, you know, uh, allowed us to use this in, in the in the game, we want to do more with this composer, uh, but it's it's really nice stuff, and it's kind of it's like this funky ambient mm -hmm. kind of thing that has an electronicness to it, but it still kind of has a movement, and we want to do a lot with that. Uh, I guess similar to Journey, where depending on what you're doing and where you're going, it's a dynamic or you know uh, score, so the music will you know, kind of morph to the uh, the action that's that's being played out. Gotcha. So if people want to find out more about this, where can they find that? Well, they could go to phoenixfire.com. It's our website. We're actually in the middle of launching a Kickstarter campaign for the game. So that's going to go live, uh, well, as soon as Kickstarter uh, gives us thumbs up. We're thinking by Wednesday at the latest. And uh, you can also check me out on our podcast. We have a podcast called The Game Design Dojo, and you can find us on iTunes. We talk all about designing games, developing games, and publishing games. Excellent. Okay, at this point, I am going to formally conclude the gray area. You will have a Wildstar panel after this, but the quality is not excellent. So basically, just break it down for you and say that this is really uh, fun and amazing, considering that I was not the biggest of fans of Wildstar at the beginning, but I have changed my tune. Uh, these battlegrounds, some of the coolest aspects of them, are that if you go through the dungeons in single-player uh, RPG, or with a group, so shall we say, in the MMO section, the non-PvP section, the PvE section, you can go through a dungeon, beat a boss, and get a special boss token, which you can then place on your battleground. You can use this boss token to summon the boss that you just defeated in the dungeon. It's a 20-man uh, boss essentially and that can defend your particular battleground area now if the enemy has a similar token and they also summon a boss those two bosses battle like godzilla versus king kong essentially in the middle of your battleground and if the uh one wins then your battleground's safe if not it, the other one kind of runs amok your enemy's boss smashing things and whatnot some really cool uh biohazard um essentially tower defense kind of uh, traps and I like the animation so when you when you put down a trap uh, you see that it builds with this scaffolding and then there's this giant smoke coming up from the ground the whole thing collapses and falls to pieces around you and then bam there's a really cool trap there they have one that is a biohazard one where you have to wear biohazard suits when you go in uh, obviously from your side and you're immune to it when you're wearing your little suits the enemy runs in and they take uh, damage that takes over time so that's kind of cool they have a bunch of other ones with with robots that kind of shoot things and other stuff so she's going to go over that in here but you may not hear it as well as i would like you to so that's a brief kind of summary of the this parts that i found coolest and you definitely should check that out and you can try to hear her as best as possible but if the quality is such you can't take it i at least want you to know that aspect so if you want to find me, you can do so at Gray Area Podcast on Twitter. You can find me on Genesee.com, J-E-N-E-S-E-E, -E -E, and on iTunes, obviously, as the Gray Area Podcast. So hopefully I'll see you soon with a new episode, and uh, look for me in the next few months or so. 
practice an hour a game. We're going to go down to our computer system. We're going to just kill it. Um, so you can see it's just as easy as registering your team for signing up. Uh, as soon as War Party is created, the War Party itself becomes a little block. And then invite members. The system is also a rating system. So uh, the team has an ego based rating. We also have a personal rating. Um, we use that to gain team awards and uh, individual awards. So as you can see, he's going to figure out right now the uh, rank system. So uh, as I said earlier, it means someone like a guild. Um, the work rate has permissions. It also has a bank that you can put more for many items. Um, so these permissions allow you to do uh, various bits for the build map uh, and for so we're going to go ahead and go in. As soon as you create that work rate, you also make your recalls of your build map. Um, so the build map is where all the customization part happens. Um, we don't want to push you into a match and have you spend five, ten minutes setting up before the match starts. So everything is separate um, for the customization experience. So we're going into our work up build over the floating, floating build in the air. Um, and then we're able to spend as much time as we want. Um, we can have our members come in and practice with the layout that you've got. So it makes it really kind of low key, but you have to have a customized population. <laughs> Alright, um, so what we're in uh, for uh, once you're ready to queue up, then you know, assuming you customize everything, uh, you can queue up more plot. Uh, any four party members who are with you can also then queue um, and then they'll be matched um, to the war block. Uh, if you don't have enough members, say you only have 30 of your 40 members online, um, you can still participate in the war block system. What needs to happening is anybody who's not in a war party but wants to play war block PvP can queue up and then we consider the mercenary. Mercenaries are then matched to teams that need additional members. Um, and they're also matched according to ratings, so you're not going to get to the scrub to work for this if you have a really other type of team. So, this is the war plot. This is, a, this is the amount of significant actually have seven war plot areas. Um, they're really large, so um, take advantage of that with uh, different structures and things on top of it that on, on the modifications itself to funnel players into the space. So, you can kind of see this right now. There are two on the outside, two in the middle, just the entrance. We uh, have one in this uh, front part, uh, kind of the center point, and then the back. Uh, the Warplot also has two generators in the back. Um, these are for match objectives, which I'll get to when we talk about match gameplay. Uh, there are also lots of walkways and stairs for the players to be able to uh, access various points in the Warplot. Alright, so. When you create a war party for the first time, you're going to get an allotment of war points. War points are a special currency that is used to purchase all the modifications for the system. Uh, you can see that we start out with 500. Uh, we're actually going to cheat and give ourselves a little bit more. Um, you earn war points by participating in matches. Uh, you get bonus amounts if you win, and you also get war points for your team if uh, you destroy the other person's modifications. So we're going to start out by uh, going to our travel socket. Um, we're going to add in a deployment station. And I can talk a little bit about the modifications. 
decision, uh, but it was how it didn't match. He said, when you run up to one of the cats, you can uh, teleport it and rocket uh, pod drops onto the area of the field. This is designated by the numbers around the pad, correspond to a holographic map of uh, the actual planet. Uh, each plug has a structured unit of these kind of pulse in the um, house. That is, that is a target point for that modification. Um, so if you want to destroy it, then that's where you need to go for the time. Once it reaches zero, uh, you, the plug will be disabled. So in, term, in, in terms of this one, you can't use the pads anymore. Now the damage persists from match to match. So, so you have a couple options. You can repair and match, uh, and use match resources. Uh, or you can repair out of match before points. But you have to remember to go back into your build map after a match to make sure everything's kosher before you look if you want to be uh, uh, Each modification also has two upgrade states that are available in match, again, using match resources. Uh, the first upgrade state is this pattern on the left hand side. And the final upgrade state would actually be the pattern on the left hand side. Or right hand side. Um, so that way you get uh, potentially better hot drop locations. Uh, so let's look at the entrance plugs. These are the ones that are the innermost plugs in our blue glider. Uh, the entrance plugs also have some uh, various features that are different from like, the trap plug. So, uh, the entrance plugs, if you call small, even though they're not necessarily small, uh, will actually confer a more party wide or more plot wide focus to, uh, for the match. They're also, they also function as, um, funneling type plugs. They might have different layouts, uh, in order to, um, better make it more defensive or, or whatnot for your team. Uh, as you can see, this one has two lanes. This is the multiple part of This is the military research center. Uh, what this one does is it actually improves the uh, free place traps and turrets to set down, so we can actually do that as well. Uh, it gives it a health buff, and then if you upgrade, uh, then you will increase the bonus of the health buffs that Now, uh, our plugs are also pretty neat. These plugs are also pretty neat because you can interact with them. That's uh, so why they're clicking right now. Uh, you can on it and you receive an item which you can use out in the battlefield. Uh, in the case of the military research center, then you're going to get a, an ability that will spawn temporary defensive cannon out in the field. Uh, so each of these things offer a little bit of uh, a different kind of item flavor, so you can take them and uh, enhance your battle. So the other one that we put down is uh, Okay, so we put down a silo. That one is a uh, Offers the war party an armor mitigation buff, upgrading and enhances the benefits of the buff. The right click ability on this move to give you the items you can use in combat also gives you sort of an energy energy shield that will reduce the amount of damage taken. We also have various other sorts of defenses. Plugs. We also have uh, player controlled um, stationary cannons, so you can use these to turn around, fire some holographs off, um, to potentially do damage to your opponent's community space. Uh, we also have energy grids, like what you see from the laser beams here. Uh, so as the enemy player uh, enters into this, they're going to be taking damage. 
So if they want to uh, disable it for other people, they're going to have to destroy the plug unit in order for uh, their great force to come in and not get hurt by it. Uh, let's see. I think that's all that with those. Let's take a look at the uh, larger books up here. <coughs> Alright. So, uh, for large plugs, there are actually two different types. Uh, we have the hazard plug, which is a more defensive uh, plug type. We also have a guard plug. And this, a guard plug can be pushed off as early on defensively. Um, so, you can choose how you want to use this. Um, so, we're putting it down right now as a bell on the factory. Uh, it's a skilled variant. Uh, so, the reinforced and secure are the ones that are more defensive. Uh, for guard plugs in general, they will produce guards with the side of the whole plot that it's in. Uh, the more secure or the more defensive versions of secure and reinforced will produce more guards on that side. Uh, for the skilled and expert, we actually have mobile guards that will spawn and move from war base to the enemy base. Uh, the skilled and expert versions will spawn more of those guards, and uh, each of the guard clubs have a reinforcement ability that you can access in the match. Um, and you'll be able to fire off that ability more often with the skilled and expert. Uh, so this is a particular battle ball plug. These guys are more melee oriented. Uh, they come in groups of two. Uh, each of our guards have different uh, complements. Uh, we have little thruster bots that uh, spawn mines down when they're fighting uh, and they come in groups of three. Now let's take a look at uh, a hazard type. <laughs> so the other type I was talking about, the hazard. Um, these produce uh, sort of damaging effects for the area of war plot that it's in. This ranges all the way from the entrance of the, of the war plot all the way up to the that side. Uh, in the case of the nuclear power plant, when an enemy player enters into the space, uh, then they're going to get a hazard bar, or a hazard bar on the upper uh, left hand corner of the screen, and they're going to start immediately taking damage, they're going to be sprinting up. So, this is a mobility increaser as well for damage. If you're a friendly player coming into it, you're going to be protected by a hazmat suit, so you don't get any of the effects of the hazard. Uh, if for the enemy player, if the hazard bar fills, then they're going to be taking additional damage. So if they want to complete a match objective for the generators, then they're going to need to destroy this plot, otherwise it's going to be pretty hard. Alright, so let's, let's leave that up and uh, let's do something else. Alright, so we're going to do the Ocean and Cannon. This is another tough guard uh, type. Uh, some of our clubs will require a fab kit as well as war points in order for it to be, it to be placed down. Uh, and you can get the fab kit through the architect tracer. Other plugs will require a certain corporate T rating in order for So, this particular one, the Ocean guys are kind of tanky. Uh, they do knockback effects for their uh, abilities. Um, and note they're also red shaded. Um, so, when the match starts, you're going to be randomly assigned to the red base or blue base. Your guards will be colored over to match your base, um, so you're not going to get confused as you can do. So it also has a barrier type light banners and things that we saw on the side of uh, these vents uh, will also do damage to players as they go across. Alright, let's uh let's do really one. Let's go with the problems. Um so the other type we have is a super weapon. Um and these are purely offensive and 
faults. Uh, you'll get an ability um, that can be used in the match if you get using match resources. We have things like lasers, we have rocket launchers, we have building beacon that reduces swarms of pests that do a lot of damage and great breaking reserves actually. Um, this one in particular is this is a multiple rocket launcher. This one has uh, you use the ability in the match to fire ten waves of missiles uh, to enemies across the no real defenses here, it's purely a uh, offensive play. Alright, um, yeah, let's look at that. Uh, so, one of the things we want to point out was the total battle maintenance cost for your plot. So, everything that we've sucked in so far has had a maintenance cost. Um, this is actually relevant for uh, match gameplay. I just want to point it out to you, to you here so you know that, it, that it's there. You can choose to build for a low battle maintenance or plot, or you can choose to build for a high. Uh, so we'll get to it. So let's, uh, hang on a minute, go ahead there. Forgot one. Yeah, so we've got the center, let's do it. And this one is a special one. This is the boss summoner plug. So, uh, when you have this down, uh, or if you have this, uh, you can also go to Veteran Dungeons or Raids, you'll have a chance to get a boss token from one of the bosses in the space. You can store that boss token in your Fortnite bank, and then when the, in the middle of the match, you can choose to summon a holographic version, 20 man strength of that boss. Uh, so we have everything from Storm Talon to Mordecai Red Moon to uh, some of our raid bosses going to be in the first launch. Um, and we also have a few that are available for Warframe costs. So if you guys want, we can pick one, and I'll show, I'll show you one. Uh, you can also store a hundred in your crate. 
Um, you sort of, you create, you take them and seize the match. And you push it down, put them down the battlefield. In Lincoln you don't allow that because you can't go and place them in the end of the floor. Let's go up there. You can see he's got a bunch of things. Alright, so that's pretty much it for the uh, customization. Any questions so far before we continue to gameplay? Okay. So once we've got everything set up, what we're going to do is queue, have our work party members queue, and then they'll eventually be matched um, for, for an actual game. So we're going to show you a little bit of footage uh, while I talk about the matching. Are those guys still fighting? Until we shut the server down, yeah, probably. Okay, so, uh, your work party has at the start of the match everything that can be customized, everything that's in your crate, um, and it will give you uh, monitoring two meters. There's an energy pool. That energy pool, uh, amount that you can start the match with is dependent on which you saw it in, and we saw it in full of times. Uh, it is drained by that total battle maintenance cost. So once the match starts, you'll have that total battle maintenance start taking away your participants. Uh, it is also affected by uh, player deaths. So if a teammate dies, it's going to deduct from that If a plug is just, of yours is destroyed, it's going to deduct from that If your boss is killed, it's going to deduct from that energy meter. So what this is, is essentially a soft match timer that can be affected by your opponent. Um, if your energy reaches zero, then uh, the opponent has won by attrition. So that's win number one. The second way you can win is by destroying uh, generators in the back. Okay. So you'll have to watch out for defenses that have some. Uh, the second pool that you have, so you have an energy pool, and the other pool is a nano pack pool. The nano pack starts at zero. Uh, and you have to gain them by capturing those large points that you saw in the program's clip uh, on the battlefield. There are five of them. Uh, these are very important for you because this is how you do your repairs in the match, these are how you do your upgrades, these are how you use your labor. Laser strike for sending out your card labor. Where you can send them off. Whoever that is, I'm going to get so, yeah, there we have it. Two ways to win. Um, energy attrition, you're probably going to want to keep, uh, for that, you're probably going to want to capture your impact codes. Uh, use them on your users and brothers and your opponents. Try to, try to drive their energy kill, or their energy kills really high so that they're definitely here. Go ahead and do some rough and rough services into their base, destroy some opponents, help out with that. Uh, if you want to win by generator destruction, you're going to have to watch out for the enemy. Enemies' defenses that they've had set up. Uh, you can also, uh, every single nano pack that you capture offers a damage, a vulnerability debuff to the enemy's generators, so you're going to want to continue to play around with you. Uh, and of course, the bosses are there to either harass the enemy or reach out to you. Guys, have any questions? <laughs> because of the way the energy meter is set up, uh, we expect matches to last somewhere between 30 and 35 minutes, depending on who has what set up and how much total. Uh, 
Yeah. that kind of sweet spot for any oil Yeah. I figure with our battlegrounds, so our arenas tend to average around five minutes. Our battlegrounds tend to average anywhere from like 10 to 12 to around 24, uh, 15 to 24 uh, halls. Um, so I wanted this experience to be much longer, sort of like you know, Altar Valley type of arenas or some other, you know, the larger battles that could come to see with uh, it has a little bit of the strategy feel to it, it has a little bit of open world feel to it, since it's a you know, large play space. Um, and then we've got the added elements of the um, bosses are battling, is it just purely to keep themselves occupied, or if you're in red base and red boss loses, does the base go around to blue base? Um, so for mo most of it is just uh, from what I've seen in, in gameplay experience. Um, you, can, you can keep it there, have it protect your base. Um, it will know when the generators are under attack. It will go and protect uh, the generators. Um, so you can use it in that method. Um, you can set it out, have them battle the other boss to keep them distracted enough so that your enemy can come by and start attacking the generators. Um, and you can use it in a lot of <laughs> I think it's what it boils down to. Um, offensively, if you summon over and there's no other boss there, and then we'll start attacking guards, we'll start attacking generals, do what we do by the over, and we'll be higher. I'm going to have to go over there and help out, otherwise, I'm going to run into some problems. <laughs>